Father, we thank you for this time and opportunity to worship together, to be more embodied, to come together in your presence. We ask that, Father, now you would guide and illumine our hearts by the Holy Spirit to be our teacher as we worship you this morning in the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's word this morning, you know, our sermon series is on the topic of cultivating intimacy with God. And the Psalms were the prayer book, they were the worship book for the saints of the Old Testament. So even recognize when we're reading the New Testament and the Gospels and the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter and John, the scriptures that they had were the Old Testament scriptures and the Psalms were kind of the hymn book, the worship book. And so for our goal of communion with God and cultivating intimacy with God, there's no better place to look than the Psalms. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 77. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that, that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this. To the years of the right hand of the Most High, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, if you've been watching on Facebook Live, I've shared that one of my pandemic joys, there haven't been many, but one of my pandemic joys has been this ESPN documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s called The Last Dance. I've been recording each one so I can go back and watch them again tonight's episodes 9 and 10, it comes to a conclusion. And it's made me think of things, uh, even that Michael Jordan was involved in off the court and kind of my own life. You know, Joel and I used to love, he loved the movie Michael Jordan did, Space Jam. Anybody remember that movie? We would watch that over and over and over again. And our favorite, we still think to this day, the very best player introduction 
that was ever given was the one for the Chicago Bulls coming out to the Alan Parsons project that they would do. There is no greater, now I know, some of you who aren't sports fans are going, really, Jeff? Some of you who are sports fans are going, yes, I remember. I mean, I wasn't even, I was a New York Knicks fan. The Bulls killed us. We should have hated the Bulls. And yet, that introduction was unbelievable. Okay, so thinking of Michael off the court, there was a commercial a while back, long after he had retired. And I, I want to say, and this is my memory could be wrong, so if you Google it and find out, fine, I'm wrong, I don't know, but I think it was a Gatorade commercial. And it begins with Michael Jordan asking the question, you want to know the secret to victory? And not many commercials do this, but I'm on the edge of my feet and I'm, seat and I'm going, yes, I, I do. I like success, I like victory. And he responds, fail to make the varsity team. Ooh. And then it runs through several other athletes. Anybody remember this commercial with me? I'm not joking. See, I have to look at Shane. He's the fellow sports fan in terms of this. So it was J.J. Watts, he's a football player. And he's scowling into the screen. He says, start your career as a walk-on. And then Peyton Manning, go three and 13 your rookie year. And Chicago Cubs standout Kyle Schwarber, who says, spend 108 years as a lovable loser before the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series. Where's Tom Hilgers in 2016? See, we have to celebrate these things when we're back in person. And lastly, here's one from my friend Rick Kokonis over here. Because Matt Ryan, yeah, you remember that? Matt Ryan, quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons, he's the last one on the screen in this commercial. He's calling in right now. That's Matt Ryan, by the way. He's affirming this illustration. Matt Ryan looks up there, and of course, who Matt Ryan is as the quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons, they, got, they were leading the Super Bowl 28-3 over, this is the Rick's favorite part, the New England Patriots. New England came back in the second half and won, and Matt Ryan just looks at the camera and says one word, defeat. Now I reflected on this commercial and I thought to myself, you know, sometimes the world gets it more than the church gets it. Because even the world knows the prosperity gospel is false. Even the world knows that if you're going to grow, in their case, in their vocation, their athletes, their goal is to win, it's going to come through pain, suffering, humiliation. Do you think Matt Ryan felt good? And he's boasting about, yeah, we're the team that had the greatest lead in Super Bowl history and lost. That's humiliating for a, for a quarterback. But even they knew that it was through pain, suffering, failure, and defeat that you grow. How much more should we who at least in principle know the scriptures and can say, yeah, absolutely, the prosperity gospel, completely false. The thinking that goes, if I just have enough faith, God will bless me. If I have enough faith, I'll have no more negative emotions. If I just have enough faith, no more fear, no more anxiety. If I just have enough faith, we know that that's false. And yet, do we in practice? See, we tend to act like there shouldn't be a struggle. We tend to act like 
tension should not be the norm for the Christian. What does Ephesians chapter 6 says? For your battle, now this is Paul writing to a New Testament church. I believe it's applicable for us. Your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the cosmic forces of evil in this world, that you have to put on the full armor of God, his word, prayer, faith, the belt of truth, all of these things in order. But the very first thing, as he's saying, is we do not wrestle. Last I saw, wrestling involves some tension. You're pushing back and forth against each other, all of that. See, let me just ask yourself one question just to try to give us application in this. Do we struggle to pray? Maybe is this why we struggle to pray? Why our prayer life doesn't seem more intimate? Why there isn't more warmth or access? Why sometimes it can just seem cold and hard and mechanical? See, how much intimacy characterizes your walk with the Lord? This morning we're looking at Psalm 77. And the psalm that starts off and is really in so many ways a lament, but it doesn't end as a lament. It doesn't stop there. Because the psalm really takes a turn to the positive. This is a true bad news, good news sermon. Because it takes a turn to the, from self to God. And what is the key? The key is remembering. Remembering is such an important theme in the Bible. Because remembering is so much more than where did I put my car keys? Who won the game last night? Remembering is God's act of renewal. It renews us. It's why we have to be immersed in the Word and in prayer and in fellowship and in worship. Remembrance here is the key to cultivating intimacy, friendship, love with the triune God of love. God wants you to cultivate. He wants you to remember in order to cultivate communion with the triune God of love. And this text tells us two key things that we need to cultivate, that we need to remember in order to cultivate communion. The first is we have to remember the struggle, and the second is we have to remember the source. Remember the struggle and remember the source, okay? And the psalm breaks down very easy. Verses 1 through 9 is remember the struggle. Verses 10 to the end of the psalm is remember the source. Look with me at verses 1 through 9. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? and never again be favorable. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? First, let's give a little background information. I always like what the Psalms, and I tell you it's important to look at, it's not part of the inerrant word of God, but it gives us some historical information that's important for our interpretation, especially the context. So we read in this title, the Psalm tells us it was written by someone by the name of Asaph. And so we need to ask ourselves, who was Asaph? And we're reminded that there are several famous Psalms 
of David where he draws our attention to a time in Israel's history where God's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony, is being brought to God's holy city, to Jerusalem. And the Ark was the symbol of God's presence. It's where communion with God, where heaven and earth were going to meet. And the Ark was brought to its home in God's city. And if you look at that, together with the account we have in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, they give us details of how David planned the worship of the sanctuary for that day and for later times. And in 1 Chronicles 15, verses 16 and 17, we learn that three men were appointed, one from each of the three clans of the tribe of Levi. They were the Carl Ward of the Old Testament. Their job was to supervise the music. Get it all together. And it says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, and of his brother Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari, their brothers Ethan, the son of Kushiah. So three men were appointed to have this role. Haman, Ethan, and the author of our psalm this morning, Asaph. And when finally the temple was completed under Solomon, these three musicians were brought back together. They, were re they had a soft reopening, sound familiar? In order to come back together and worship the Lord. And it's this Asaph who had a large role in the music of the worship of God's people. And he's of chief interest here in this section of the Psalter. If you look at from Psalm 73 forward, to some, you will see to Psalm 83, something like that, in the middle of the 80s, you'll see that they are all attributed to this worship leader, this chief of the musicians, Asaph. And commentators remind us that kind of in the emotional tone, what's called the genres of the Psalms, you have, for instance, in hymns, psalms of praises. Our call to worship was a psalm of praise. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Doesn't take a brain scientist, a rocket scientist, to kind of get the feel. Well, wait a second. That's kind of a joyful, upbeat time. Shout for joy to God. Not just all the people, not just Spruce Creek Presbyterian Church, not just whoever's watching on Facebook and YouTube, but all the earth. That's pretty powerful. That's everything. That's all-inclusive. That's a hymn. Commentators call that psalms of orientation. That's what we long for. That's what we're hooked. That's thy kingdom come. That's not yet, is it? <laughs> That's still future. Because laments, on the other hand, are when things are in turmoil. Things are a mess. Those are called psalms of disorientation. But then the key, what turns us from this preoccupation with the disorientation in order to get reoriented so that we can live in, let's just use New Testament terms, faith, hope, and love. Remembrance. Remembrance. And the first thing we have to remember is the struggle. We can't avoid 
the tension. We can't avoid the struggle. We may want to, and we may come up with very creative ways to suppress and repress the struggle and keep it in so we can stay positive and so we could do all of that. That is not going to cultivate deep, intimate communion with God. And remember that that's the goal. The goal is not struggle for struggle's sake. The goal is not morbid introspection. The goal is this is the means and the path towards intimate communion with God. Obviously, Asaph here is in the grip of distress. He is in the grip of a difficult situation. He has nowhere to turn. He's helpless to do anything about it. But he does one right thing. He turns to God. He's processing his disorientation in the presence of God. Listen to how one writer described John Calvin's teaching on prayer and its goal of communion. This is somebody writing about Calvin, and he says, For Calvin, the practice of prayer is a form of communion with God, an intimate, developing dialogue in which pilgrims continually pour out their whole hearts, petitioning God for gifts they need, thanking and praising God for gifts received. Each and every daily circumstance, bar none, is thus reframed as an occasion for intimacy with God whether it's petition or praise. And so the whole pilgrimage is likewise reform, reframed as a form of itinerant, evolving companionship. This writer says, in this sense, Calvin casts prayer as a practice of Emmanuel, we might say, of God with us at every step, a daily discipline by which the Spirit makes us aware that God is always present with us. Thus we may say, that the purpose of prayer is not to inform God, but rather to reform disciples. I'm going to read that again. The purpose of God is saying, is not saying, God, maybe you fell asleep on the job for a second and forgot some of the... Let me bring this information to you. You know, let me help you out a little bit. It's Jeff here. I'm kind of struggling with all this pandemic stuff, feeling anxious, worried about my wife, worried about the church. What will life look like? You know, will everybody stay together? How will we be connected? Do you think God, would he set down his omniscience for a second? Kind of along the line, wow, Jeff, I needed that. Thank you. Thank, what a beautiful prayer. Thanks for telling me what I needed to know. See, sometimes, sometimes my own arrogance Forget yours. I'll just speak to myself for a second. Absolutely boggles my mind. The purpose of prayer is not to inform God, but rather to reform disciples. The purpose of prayer is changing me. The purpose of prayer is drawing near to God so that our hearts are not just jury-rigged, like that's some kind of obedience, but actually conformed to Christ-likeness. Tim Keller reminds us that even if God seems absent to us, he's not. He writes, the feeling of his absence might be the evidence of his presence. And that struggle is part of the training. Look at the text, just a couple of examples, and just enter into how Asaph is in distress here. Verse 2, he says, In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. 
Verse 4, he says, you hold my eyelids open. He's struggling to sleep. He's awake at night. And I am very fortunate in that I sleep very well. Evie would tell you, usually, it starts at 9 o'clock, falling asleep to whatever we're finally putting on TV. She and many people I know struggle with insomnia and struggle with sleeping. That is one of the most difficult things to ever go, for, go through. Now listen to what he's saying here. He's saying he's awake at night. Verse 2, my soul refuses to be comforted. The psalmist refuses pat, simple answers. Just shooting Bible verses at him is not going to work. Yes, he needs the Word of God, but he needs it applied to the dynamics of his soul and his spirit in a particular and different way. Verse 3, his first thought about God doesn't bring him any comfort. He says, when I remember God, I moan. He is not in a very good place. This is as one of the fathers of the church, St. John of the Cross, said, a dark night of the soul for Asaph. Then he hearkens back to the past, and he says in verse 5, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He said, maybe I can remember happier times. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a di diligent church. Here he is in distress not able to sleep, not being comforted. And he thinks about the past, particularly as a worship leader, about songs he has sung. Songs that probably brought him great joy. And the contrast between a happy past and an agonizing present only serves to heighten his current distress. See, we all know what this, like, what this is like. You're struggling, and you begin to think about the past, a happier time. I remember when. I wish I could go back there. And what happens now? The anger's gone up a few notches, hasn't it? Now you're really mad. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever? Never again be favorable. Has his steadfast love. Steadfast love is his covenant love. I mean, this is pretty accusatory. Has his faithfulness, his mercy, his covenant love ceased? In other words, he's saying, God, have you stopped being faithful? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? That's another way of saying, have you forgotten to be yourself? Are you no longer God? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? The psalmist is peppering God with a series of questions. All connected to God's covenant. One commentator says, the very presence of this prayer in the Psalms makes it clear that God invites his people, God invites his people's honest and courageous prayers. You're bypassing, you're going to miss out on intimacy if you bypass the struggle. If you fail to enter the struggle, friends, and we're going to get to the second point right now. It certainly doesn't stop there. But if your prayer, if your walk, if the nature of how you live is, I'm going to go from where I am now, not even examine where I am now, and go right to point two, you've short-circuited the process of deep, intimate communion with God. You must remember the struggle. But then secondly, see, it doesn't stop there. You ready for some good news? 
It's 11 o'clock. I've been going for, what, a half hour. Here we go. Here comes the good news. Remember the source. Look at verse 10, picking up there. And these are great words. I love this. He says, then I said. You can almost sense the change of direction, the change of tone. He says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember. So he's cultivating remembrance again, but now in a different direction. Not just happy times, not just good times. He's going to specifically remember the gospel. Because he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. When God is great, like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. One commentator puts it this way. He says, rather than concentrating now and obsessing on his present condition, he resolves to look to the past. When God worked his miracles of rescue, he focuses on God's concrete, historical, saving acts. And it is to this to which the psalmist will now concentrate his attention. And think about this. Put yourself in the shoes now of Asaph, of an Old Testament saint, of an Old Testament believer. He's there and he's saying, I will remember the mighty deeds, the wondrous works of God of old. Where do you think his mind would go? It would go to the Exodus. That paradigm of salvation, the means of salvation that was there for the Old Testament church. It's that picture of salvation, of deliverance, of rescue. So what does he say in verse 16? When the waters saw you. Sound a little like the Red Sea? Remember your Bible stories here? When the waters saw you, O God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was where? It was through the sea. That's a direct allusion to the Red Sea. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were, not, were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. One writer says back in Exodus 14, God instructed Moses to turn back and camp in a seemingly vulnerable area by the sea. Remember the struggle. God didn't lead them in a way that would make sense to them. God didn't lead them in a way that they would say, ah, that Red Sea, I, I get it now. Egyptians to the back of me, sea to the front of me. I'm hemmed in. God, you're making perfect sense. I kind of get what you're doing. God sovereignly and purposefully led them to an area that would make no sense to them, where they would be vulnerable. And this writer says, when Pharaoh and his chariot troops charge Israel, Moses raises his rod, symbolizing the presence of God. The sea opens up, allowing Israel to go through, but then closes on top of the Egyptians. I'm sure, by the way, that's what every Israelite walking through was thinking exactly what was going to happen. They were, I know why God's doing this. He'll get this. 
This writer says, in this act, though, God saved his people when they were in distress and completely beyond any human help. The psalmist here imagines himself in an analogous situation, but then by focusing on the Exodus, remembers that his God is a God who saves in impossible situations. And think about this. This is in the Old Testament, too. Salvation is completely by grace. If there's anything we could contribute to it, anything we could add to it, anything, if, if it's not one billion percent impossible, if we could add or contribute one iota to it, it's not grace. God put them sovereignly and purposefully in this vulnerable situation to remind them that this is completely of Him. Salvation is of the Lord. Completely. So the psalmist here personifies the waters. He says, when the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid. The deep trembles. He did this because in the ancient near world, near eastern world, the waters were a symbol of chaos. Chaos and deep darkness, turmoil. And in the Exodus, God overcomes the chaos, leading, shepherding the Israelites through the watery chaos, bringing them to safety. Salvation was of grace in the Old Testament. Salvation is completely of grace in the New Testament and for us. Because, see, there was one true Israelite who wasn't led safely through the waters. There was one true Israelite that we need to see that the exodus is pointing to a greater and permanent exodus. That Jesus, the true Israelite, led us through. And think about this. How did he do it? For Jesus on the cross went through the deepest darkness, the most turbulent chaos, basically the chaos of uncreation. The waters of chaos came crashing down upon him. They came crashing down upon him so that we could walk through in safety. The waters came down upon him so that they would never be able to ultimately harm us. That whatever we go through is only temporary. Remember the commercial we began with, the Gatorade commercial? What is the secret to victory? I'm not saying Matt Ryan, Peyton Manning, J.J. Watt, Michael Jordan knew this, but they got it right. The gospel was actually preached in that commercial, if you're paying attention. Because what is the secret to victory? Defeat. Failure. Every part of the Jewish leadership, that hierarchy of the Pharisees and the Herodians and all that, every part of the Roman governing authorities thought they had Jesus. They got him. We won. We put this so-called King of the Jews, this so-called Messiah. He's crucified. A sign of a curse. It looked like ultimate defeat. Ultimate failure. Ultimate humiliation. Until three days later. When God raised him from the dead. It was his defeat that brought ultimate victory, the victory of resurrection. The cross is absolutely central to our faith. I'll never bypass the cross. But I will also never stop there. 
Because if you stop there, apparent defeat becomes actual defeat. We need to remember that the cross led to resurrection, and the resurrection leads to new exodus. The resurrection is what leads to justification. Read Romans 4, 24, 25 sometimes. The resurrection is what leads to victory. And friends, our life is to be patterned just in the same way. It's the pattern. We'll never fulfill it. We'll never execute it perfectly. But the pattern of our life ought to look like death, resurrection. What do I need to give up? What do I need to lay down? What do I need to sacrifice? All forms of dying. Every one of them a form of dying. In order to accomplish resurrections. See, this means for us, as we remember the struggle, as we remember the source, an eternity of cultivating communion with a triune God of love who will go through anything not to lose us, but to be present with and to us always. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for this time that we've had together. And Lord, help us to cultivate communion with you. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.